Hello, my dear listener, and welcome to Is This It? I'm your host, Donna Grinberger, and I'm here to have meaningful conversations with talented and purpose-driven people to discover what mindset allowed them to overcome their greatest challenges and achieve success and share it with you so you can do the same. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider joining my exclusive Patreon community to support the show and unlock bonus content. Sometimes just giving yourself enough space and time to explore something fully can enable you to truly understand what works and what doesn't versus kind of like flicking through different projects. It's it's difficult to get any form of depth or validation upon whether this project is meaningful to you or not. The way that my brain works is that I have like these screaming kids who are shouting at me for attention, right? And until I look at them and go like, I heard you, you know, they're gonna keep coming at me. On today's episode, Mark LaRoost, author, speaker, leadership coach, and the host of Unconventionalists. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to have this conversation with you because you seem to be a very purpose-driven person. And the reason why I started this podcast is actually to, in a way, live out my own purpose, in a way, raise awareness, I guess, in people's minds as to importance of finding their own purpose Mm -hmm. and to find out other amazing people's journeys such as yourself in discovering their relationship with that word so from doing my research i know got the clipboard got everything so i know that your purpose is to eradicate career misery in the workplace by connecting people to their own purpose Hmm. so my question to you is how much time did it take you to define that for yourself well it's actually it's actually changed since since then it's kind of so it's one of the things I talk about how purpose evolves and it's an organic matter. It's that was going to be the you... follow-up question. Is that yeah. still it for you? Yeah, no. So so it's so really like if if I had to boil it down, my purpose in life is to normalize the human condition. That's kind of what really resonates with me. It kind of What feels, does that mean? It means to enable others to feel seen, heard and loved in some way, shape or form. And it sounds like some kind of fluffy words thrown out, especially when I do work in the corporate world. But I think it's my ability to talk about meaningful topics or or deep or difficult topics and do it in a way that can be light and fun as well and it it kind of normalizes the the human condition if you want so it enables people to feel less alone because it feels like oh somebody else is talking about these things that i that i struggle with or to normalize the conversation around shame stigma and and so forth and that feeds very well into my book right which is all around how to to take ownership of your story and, and take back the narrative of your story so you can no longer be driven by it, but you you actually back in the driving seat. So it's, yeah, it, it's kind of, it's it's evolved, you know. When I used to do a lot of work in the, in the corporate world, you know, that was a kind of like my statement. I'd come on stage and I'd say, you know, my mission in life is to eradicate career misery in the workplace. And I actually used to follow that by saying, and the reason why I want to do that is because I want to help create organizations and shape leaders where I know that if something happened to me, my kids would be able to work in organizations that would take care of them. And that's a very powerful statement. That resonated with me. That Mm. made a lot of sense. And the way that you phrased it, which is what it is, why it is, and how you're doing it, it's a perfect circle, right? So it can land in people's hearts and minds very clearly. So that's, Mm. I guess, what makes you a very great storyteller and why you wrote the book (laughs) that you did. Yeah, I mean, at least I I love love a good story. And again, I think it, it takes time, you know, like if you read my first book, It's Not You, It's Me, that was very much about my journey of going from like the corporate world and, and being what I call like a corporate dropout, kind of leaving that world and exploring what values meant and, and, and what does it mean to find a company that has a, a good fit 
for who you are and how you want to show up in the world enables you to also express yourself. Like it was just all these little things. So it's a long, it's a long journey. Like we're now 2023 at the time of this recording. That little particular episode of a meltdown was 2009. So you know, 14 years of a journey. So it's kind of it's easy to to kind of look at some of the sound bites that I, I kind of now share and talk about why I do what I do and go, oh, that feels easy, but it's 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 taken a while and it doesn't need to. It doesn't have to take you that long. But I think it's worth it's worth the pursuit. So interesting. So interesting to ponder upon the fact that it seems that the journey is really always evolving. So this podcast is called Is This It? And that kind of is a tribute to that ever ongoing journey. So what might be it at the moment? Most probably won't be it in four years time yeah, when I look back at it. Definitely. So it's very interesting to hear about how your purpose has evolved as well mm. and how how you're redefining it is that something that you do on a regular basis no i, I don't think it's necessary. i mean i i spend probably too much time like overthinking about you know how do i phrase or package it especially in, in in the in the kind of the work that i'm in so i predominantly go and talk in organizations and conferences so fortune 500 companies and global conferences uh, but also coach and mentor entrepreneurs and, and business leaders part of a program so in that space it I kind of need to be able to explain what I do so people get it. But then, you know, you've got a different element, which I think is, if you think about it as a, as a flower, right? Like think about the heart of the flower, like a, like a sunflower. Okay. And you've got petals around it. What I found is that when you sort of get even a vague idea of what the core purpose is, like of the, of that central circle of the sunflower, the petals are different ways you can express it. Mm. So this podcast is one way for you to express it, but Maybe writing a book's another one. Maybe going and giving talks another. Maybe coaching someone's another one. Maybe exercising. You name them all. <laughs> yeah, but you see what I'm saying? So it's kind of like you. Sometimes people get caught up on like the petal rather than the heart of the flower. If that makes sense. So it does. What I found is, you know, my my core is like you know, normalize the human condition so that we can all feel seen, heard, and loved. It it can feel to somebody. It doesn't really matter how it sounds almost to somebody else because I don't really share that necessarily publicly. This is just like I know that that's what mm -hmm. drives me. But then I can express it in different ways. So for example, you know, glow in the dark, the book I just wrote it's it's a it's a it's a passion project that i've had for a long time to try and unlock the power of everyone's story and to see how like worthy and valuable your story is so at the moment my mission is to help entrepreneurs and business leaders impact the world with their story that's kind of what i'm focusing my time and energy and attention on will it be forever i, I don't know most likely not i might shift at some point to something else but for now that feels valuable to me and i think a big challenge that i find when i hear people asking me like how do i find my purpose whatever it is is that it's it it can be hard to stick to something when it feels uncomfortable and sometimes just giving yourself enough space and time to explore something fully can enable you to truly understand what works and what doesn't versus kind of like flicking through different projects it's it's difficult to get any form of depth or validation upon whether this project is meaningful to you or not and i'm not saying you should you know there's a thin line between you know, jumping too quickly and, and staying for too long, right? You can see that in relationships, you can see that in work. But, but I think there is something worth in saying that I, as someone who's got quite a kind of a creative brain and, you know, I'm a dyslexic thinker and I've probably got some form of ADHD of some shape or form. So it's really easy for me to get distracted and to want to jump on the next project. So I have to find a way to hone that in. And the way that I hone that in is that for the next 12 months, I'm going to dedicate my time, energy, and attention to helping people unpack, own, and share their stories so the world listens. That's kind of what 
gives me a little bit almost like if you've ever seen horses with blinds mm -hmm. on the side of their eyes kind of help them focus it's almost that mm -hmm. i need to do and then in 12 months i'll reassess so next year, if I jump back on the podcast, ask me the same question, you know, it might be the same. It might have changed. Mm, it's very, very interesting. From somebody that is, has a bit of inclination to ADHD, how do you then narrow it down further? Because, okay, that's what you want to do, but then there are about 100 pedals that you can do that with. What's your system to going further? It's a good question. Um, so I have almost like, if you call it like a, like a creative project jar, if you want. So... The way that my brain works, and I, and I try to explain this to, to my partner, is that I have like these screaming kids who are shouting at me for attention, right? And until I look at them and go like, I heard you, you know, they're going to keep coming at me. And so that can come in the shape or form of so many different projects. It could be like, I want to do a new showreel. I want to do a new podcast about this topic. I want to do, write this new book. And so all these kind of ideas. So what I do is I usually allow myself a space to just write everything down. And the process of writing it down and capturing it in some way almost quietens that voice. Mm. And then I can really sit with like... Downloads the mind. Yeah, a little bit. I call it a mind dump, mm. basically. It's a mind dump. So I use this exercise with clients, but I use this exercise myself a lot. It's, it's this idea that you clear the mind of all the stuff that's in your head. And then I can look at it and go, okay, I could do this, but maybe not right now. And so just have this idea that I can always come back to it if I want to. And I've got a list of projects. And sometimes every 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 once in a few months, I'll look at that list and I'll say, actually, that... That, that was, was a crazy idea. Yeah, Let's it, leave it. <laughs> yeah, well, or it's almost like... Okay, so I'm, I'm going on, on a complete left field, but you know Marie Kondo's mm -hmm. book, right? The Life-Changing Magic of, of Tidying Up, whatever it is. So I read that book and, um, and there's something really interesting that spoke to me in that book, which is this idea that you're holding on to these items of clothing that you're not wearing, but somebody else could enjoy, right? Like this concept of you're holding on to this thing that you're not even enjoying, this poor piece of clothing, if you go into this kind of like down the line, like closing your feelings, right? But like this like piece of item isn't getting to fulfill its purpose of, of being worn and being, you know, loved and all this stuff. So why are you holding on to it? Just give it to somebody else who, who, would, who would need it. And so I think sometimes like that about my ideas. I'm like, I think it's an idea. I'd love to do it, but maybe it's best for someone else to do it. So is there a place that you just post all of your ideas? Well, no, but I've actually, I've actually thought of this. I've got lists of like business ideas or creative projects that I have. And I think at one point, I'm just going to post on the blog and just go, hey, if you're looking for some creative ideas, I'd love to see these being implemented. Take it, use it, run with it. it. It's a weird thing, I think, where you kind of realize like you just, I mean, I just don't have the time and bandwidth to do all the things None I would of us love do. to do. No. And I think that can get in the way almost of appreciating the moment or being in the present moment and doing whatever task or project or mission you're on because you keep on thinking about all the things. But, you know, my podcast, The Unconventionalists, I've interviewed now probably 150, you know, kind of high performers in different industries from politics and athletes, CEOs and influencers, that kind of stuff. And sure, there are some examples that you could find where they've got some form of different, you know, hands in different pots, but most of them have been really good at staying on course and just doing something just really well. There's there's a great quote from David Hyatt, who's the founder of the Do, um, Do Lectures and, and Hewitt Denim. And he talks about like, do one thing, it's enough. And I've got that actually in my office and my backdrop of my office. It's that, it's written in big bold, like do one thing, it's enough. Do one thing well, it's enough, sorry. And 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 I know it's hard, especially with... Do you apply that overall thinking about your life, about your year, about your day? or No, I think it's more about like what the kind of work I want to put out into the world. More, more like that because variety is the spice of life, right? And I think I, I do enjoy some form of variety. I mean, my, my partner are quite different in that way, like... 
we'll we'll sit at a restaurant or we'll maybe order something and she'll be able to like order the same thing every time and 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 love it and i always try new things and you've got a a good six out of ten chance is going to suck and it's not going to be that good <laughs> but maybe that one time you're going to find something that's really yeah. cool and so i kind of approach more like that but i think for my so for my work so up until recently i was doing a lot of work around purpose right so a lot of companies organizations were bringing me in to talk about how to find meaning and purpose at work whether that's for a brand like how do you unleash the power of purpose in, uh, in your brand you know why do why do purpose-driven companies do better and matter more like all this kind of stuff and then I decided to write a book about storytelling, personal storytelling, and why we all have a, a story worth sharing and, and the value for both ourselves from a healing perspective, but also for others and, and for your business and, and impact and all that stuff. And for that to happen, I had to park purpose. Like I had to park this concept of I'm going to be focusing my work and intention on purpose and now shifting to story. So I still get caught in old patterns where I get people asking me, like, how should I introduce you? Right? Like on podcasts. And I still put like Mark helps clients find their purpose and all this kind of stuff. But now I've kind of gone back to just say, you know, Mark's on a mission to help entrepreneurs and business leaders impact the world with their story. And I just have to stay with that. And it's uncomfortable because I really want to shout, but there's so much more I want to do. There's so much more I've got to offer. But the metaphor I use for people to kind of wrap their minds around it is if you go shopping, you know, hopefully some of us are still going shopping in the high streets and supporting independent local stores and that stuff. But you get to the window, right? And most likely you're going to see a mannequin. And on that mannequin, you're going to see a few curated items enough to make you interested to find out what's inside, right? Imagine if the shop put all their stock in the front window. It'd be really overwhelming, right? You'd be like, this looks like a mess. They do what? Like they do books, but they also do belts. And they'll, as opposed to having this nice curated kind of, you know, window shop where you can go, that sounds interesting and exciting. Let me find out more. And you go inside and then you realize they've got so much more to offer. That's something that takes practice, but actually pays off, I think, tenfold because you... Simplify the process for people to understand what you're about in the world, which I think is half the battle, you know, especially when I look at a lot of people in in, in in our space, I guess, in the kind of the thought leadership space and podcasting, speakers, coaches, all that kind of stuff. I think a lot of jargon is being used or words that don't actually make a lot of sense to people. And they want to say like there are 15 different job titles on their LinkedIn profile or maybe their Instagram um, bio. Whereas I think if you can have the courage to just stick in a lane and just really believe that you can make an impact and a dent and that's enough without needing to spread yourself in everything to feel like you're going to matter. I think, again, you, you, won't, you won't half the battle. You know, you touch upon such an important and crucial point. And as you said, a lot of people in the industry, right? Coaches, anyone that wants to help people, right? Mm. In the beginning of the journey, if you have a mentor or a coach mm. as a coach, they'll tell you, okay, well, you have to niche down. You mm. have to find your audience. Mm. Who are you? Who are you going to help? The riches are in the niches, they used to say. I just, but can I just clarify something real yeah. quick? For everybody listening, it's pronounced niche, not niche. Who okay? says niche? It's uh, niche. Uh, no, but Ameri like a lot of Americans <laughs> say niche. And the reason why it's niche, and I'll explain if you don't mind just yeah, for a yeah, second. Yeah. It's a French word because I'm half French. It's a French word. And I think it's pretty cool. So back in the olden days when they had like oil lamps, the way that they spread the most light in a room where they used to have these holes in the wall and they were called niches. So you would put a lamp into this, into this little kind of almost hole in the wall that would spread the most light so the idea of niching is actually even though it feels like you're really narrowing down you're actually spreading the most light possible just so i'd give that little caveat mic drop yeah. <laughs> right there thank you thank you for sharing that. i didn't know that yeah no worries um so yeah going back to coaches mm. right and and the first thing that any 
person will tell you, no, I want to help everyone. I cannot. What are you talking about? I want to help mm. these people, these people, all people, all people that can be helped. I want to help them. Yeah. So how, how, how to find that strength to cancel everyone else and yeah. be like, okay, no, I'm just going to try and help this yeah. little group. So, people. okay. Well, there's, there's 10, 10 ways I could, I could, I could unfold this one, but okay. First, number one, I would say that it's, it comes from a good place. So it, it, it comes from a good place and it comes from a place of fear. So I'm just going to separate those two real quick. It comes from a good place because you want to try and help as many people as possible. So if you're basically told, look, you can, in that, you know, in people's mind, it's like you can, you can help a million people, you can help, or you can help really well, like a hundred or a thousand people, right? That can feel scary. It can feel like I'm, I'm not fulfilling my full potential because what I really want is to impact millions of people's lives. And I want to be Tony Robbins and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But it also comes from a place of fear. It comes from a place of fear deeply rooted around the idea that if I do niche down, then I will lose out, right? So it's kind of like, why would I, why would I not try and go for like this million population versus like this 1,000 or 10,000 niche? And in that fear, there's a process involved around this fear of commitment. What if I'm not 100% sure it's the right niche? What if I niche down and then I can't get out of it and I'm stuck into this? What if I say yes to this? That means I have to say no to all of that. That's right. So once you kind of get really clear and get a bit of self-awareness on that, A, it's a normal pattern. It happens to every, every coach, every speaker when they begin. But then you've got to understand what's your objective. Okay. So if your objective is to have a hobby and just something you do on the side that you don't want to take real seriously, you don't want to build it into a business or something that's going to sustain them, then that's fine. Do whatever you want. You know, if you want to coach people, then do that. But if if you want to try and build a sustainable revenue generating business then you're going to have to niche down because if you don't the market's going to be confused as to what you're about and what problem you solve for them because what people don't understand is that when it comes down to you know whether that's sharing your story or enrolling people through through storytelling the end goal should be to try and make it clear that you understand their pain and you understand what they're going through and you can position yourself as someone who has compassion empathy but also credibility and authority so not only can you tell them like, look, I get what you're going through, but also like, I've got a plan. Like I know how to get you out of this. I've helped other people get out of this. So I've been out through this. And the truth of the matter is, I'll give you an example. If I tried to talk to a market, let's say for whatever reason, I was starting a new coaching business, right? And I wanted to speak to mums, right? I was going to talk to mums about the challenges of... Postpartum you know, depression. Yeah, right, exactly. I can read about it. I can hear people's stories about it. But am I going to be as efficient and as powerful and as helpful as someone who's actually been through that, who's actually helped many women go through that? Probably not. But I can tell you with intimate detail what it feels like to be a dad. And I can tell you what it feels like to be a dad when you run a business, when you have young kids and you're trying to build a business at the same time, the stresses, the strains, the fears. Like I can talk about that in a way that when people read that, they go, oh my God, that's me. He understands me. And so really niching down is a better way of saying, I see you and I'm here to help. And the last thing I'll say that helps people is what I've found, which is weird. Think about your, your, your almost like your niche is like your, your ideal target market. Hey guys, I have a very exciting announcement to make. I've started working with my very first sponsor and it's none other than, drumroll, Momo Kombucha. Our own London-based, locally produced, healthy and delicious kombucha that I've been a fan of since I first tried it. For those of you who know me, 
you know that I'm obsessed with my health. But at the same time, I'm a devout foodie. And nothing will make me renounce tasty food and drink. Unfortunately, most delicious drinks are full of sugar and other additives that are not good for your health. This is why I love Momo so much. It's delicious, so it curbs my cravings for snacks and healthy, as it contains loads of probiotics that are great for your gut. If you'd like to try it yourself, use the discount code ISTHISIT15 to get a 15% off of your first order. Okay, so when I used to work with coaches and speakers and, and that kind of stuff to try and build their business, this is many moons ago, one of the things I would say really quickly is like, can you think about a particular client who you worked with who was just amazing? And usually most people who've been in business for a little while, or maybe even have just started off, will have a general idea like, oh yeah, there's this one person. And I'm like, cool, tell me more about them. And you they're know. like them. Well, well, often, often, yeah, often they have a lot of similarities, but what I'll, what the reason why I'll do that exercise is that they'll distill some of the values that this client represents for them, right? So it might be someone who's really driven, they show up, they pay on time, they don't, they don't haggle with the prices, you know, they're grateful, they've got a good heart, like whatever the defining moments are. And then I would say, cool, how, how, would you, how would you love being able to multiply that client? I'd be like, oh my God, that'd be amazing. What if you could have like a business with like, my, you know, it's very difficult to get 100%, but like majority of your clients would be a representation of this, but that, yeah, 100%. So cool, so you're gonna have to niche down to make that person feel seen, whoever that person is. And the way that you do that, as I talk about in the book, it's this idea of audience of one. If you want to reach the masses, you've got to speak to one person. You know, I mean, it's 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 crazy. Like the amount of times on my newsletter, I've had people emailing back saying, oh my God, this is exactly what I was thinking. This is exactly what I'm going through. And the reason being is that I have one person in mind. One of my favorite clients who I worked with, who I would wish I could clone her. <laughs> She's awesome. And when I write a newsletter, when I wrote my book, I was writing it to her. That's powerful. I think that's what they say also with public speaking. Yeah. That you're always talking to one person instead yeah. of the whole room of 1,000. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you, yeah, public speaking is like a whole other, a whole other ballgame, right? But it's, I think, again, it's when you write your talk, when you craft your message that you want to share on stage or on a panel or on a podcast, you've just got to think about who is it that I would love to be able to reach? Like if I could get a room full of, 10, 100, or 1,000 people, my deal, people, who would they be? And then you got to think about what are they going through? What are, the, what are the challenges, struggles, dreams, fears that they are saying to themselves? And when you really truly understand the pain points of your customers and the challenge they go through, then you can talk in your, in your social media posts, in your marketing, your sales calls, your, all this stuff becomes much easier because you start collecting data as to well, how they describe their problems. What's it costing them? What have they tried? Why has it failed? What do they wish existed? What would it be like if they could solve it? And then you give them a plan of how to do it. Very, very, very powerful. That just made me think of an analogy. You know how they say, if you like everything, you don't like anything. So this is kind of the same, you know, saying I want to help everyone. You kind of preclude yourself from being able to work with that ideal yeah. customer. So it's also really hard to recommend. So I'll give you an example. I've had a few people ask me like, oh, you know, because they've seen me talk at different companies or companies like, oh, I'd love to get in the circuit. Like, and I'll just say, like, cool. So just as a test, I said, tell me what you talk about. And they'll just say something really broad. But I can't recommend anyone like that. Like the people I recommend are A, people I trust, but B, they've got a very specific you field know, of expertise. Well, for example, Vanessa Bello, right? I think about, she's awesome. She's the founder of High 15. She's a diversity, inclusion and belonging expert who's worked with like LVMH, Disney, Gymshark and, and so forth. 
it's, she does something very specific. She solves a very specific problem. She talks about a very important topic. So it's easy for me to go to a conference and someone says, do you know any other speakers? And I said, well, are you, are you thinking about bringing someone? I've got someone, right? Specificity breeds recommendations. Because that also gives you a much more narrow lane yeah. to actually grow in and potentially become number one. Yeah, and it's also like, you know, it's, it sounds silly, but like if I come across a resource, an opportunity, I can then, I know instantly who I'm thinking of. So, you know, like for example, my friend Thomas Olivier, the founder of um, Omnos. And if I see something about genetics or health optimization or anything like that, I'm like, oh, Thomas. If I see something about women's sexuality and sexual pleasure and demystifying taboos about the pleasure gap, I'll think about Biddy Quinlan, you know, the founder of Furley and CEO, co-founder of Furley and CEO, who, who I had the pleasure of working with. So it just becomes easy to kind of recommend. If you're a generalist, like, I'll, and I'll say the last thing about this because, you know, I, I can get on for too long. But if, if you run and you've got a knee injury, who do you want to go and see? Like a GP or like a knee expert, right? Nine times out of 10, you'll go for a, a, someone who's like a specialist in knees versus someone who sees everyone between having a cold, the flu, the COVID, or having a, a bad ankle. And it's the same thing with you. If you don't position yourself as a certain expert in a certain particular topic, you're not going to inspire confidence in someone who's looking for a specific problem to be solved. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess the only exception to the rule is for the people that don't know. So they don't know what injury they have. They yeah. don't know exactly what they want. Yeah, they go. just want some inspiration. So yeah, they yeah. go to some inspiring figure yeah, yeah. to get inspiration. Yeah, and, so, and sometimes you're just going to start somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to close down kind of the purpose topic. So you said that you were speaking in a lot of companies for them. Why do you think it's so important to define your purpose and what happens if we don't? Wow. Okay. So the shortest version, I can answer that question. So okay, here it is. So in my TEDx talk that I gave in 2017, I kind of talked about how one of the reasons why most people were drawn to this concept of entrepreneurship, despite the epic proportion of failure and the correlation with mental health issues, was that actually what people were looking for was a sense of meaning and purpose beyond themselves and being part of an important mission that they felt compelled to be part of. But being an entrepreneur is only one thing that you can do that working in academia, you can do that working in a company, you can work that by volunteering, like there's different ways you can express and reach that fulfillment if you want. So that was like one thing. So I think on a deeper level, we it's one of like our core foundations as human beings that we need to have something that is meaningful beyond ourselves. The way that I sometimes explain it to people is it's, it's just finding a a reason as to why this matters and why I should do this. So even with my kids, right? So I'll see my kids. I mean, I, the difference between if I tell my kids we're just going to walk to school and they're kind of moaning that I want to walk and it's annoying versus I say, we're going to play a game. And the game is we're going to have letters and numbers who are going to chase us. And randomly, we don't know which number of letters are going to chase us, but we'll turn around and we'll have to shout out what number we see. And then we sprint for a little bit and then they pretend they put them in prison and then we continue. But... That journey goes by so so much like so quicker, right? Because we've given it a reason to to play. We've 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 added something that matters to it. So I think individuals, organizations, and teams who lack a common sense of purpose or a clear common vision at some point end up struggling. Like that's what I found that what what carries us forward and endures a lot of adversity is is being able to dream up of a future worth striving for. And so if you have the ability to paint a picture of what a different future could be, and I say this, so this is the new book I'm writing at the moment, but it's like almost like you have to be willing 
to, to, to do work that you will see no end of, right? Like I call it build your cathedral, not because of a religious purpose, whatever, whatever you're into, you know, mass synagogue. You're talking or, about legacy. Yeah. So, so I, I remember as a kid, I remember as a kid walking around Barcelona, I think it was. A Sagrada Familia was there and it was being still renovated, I think still to this day, right? And I remember my mom explaining to me about this infrastructure and and how the architect of it never knew that he would never see the end of the project and how it was actually quite common in this era, even like medieval cathedrals and all this kind of Gothic cathedral, that they knew when they took on the project that they would never see it. But they still were so excited about it. They still poured themselves into it. And I thought there was something really interesting from a concept from like, how can you then apply that into companies and leaders? If you, you know, there's a great quote, I forgot who said it, but it's like, do not be afraid of the work that has no end. And, and the last part, just to kind of keep it really short, I would say is we all need and want to be part of an exciting story. We all want to feel like we're on an important and exciting journey, right? So when you're in an organization that has a really clear purpose beyond and I often challenge when I used to go to companies and they'd bring me in and I'd have a chat with the CEO and the founding and the executive team and all this stuff before my intervention. I'd be like, so what's your purpose, right? And I'd sometimes do this individually or, or in a group setting. And I would want to be the number one in our industry. Why? I don't know what the swearing policy on the podcast is, but it's like, like who gives a shit, right? Why? Like literally, you're the only person who's going to be interested in being number one. So what, from an ego perspective, so that you can look at shareholder value and say like, we are the number one with... That's nobody... not a goal that you can share with somebody that they're going to get behind. It's yeah. not an exciting story. Being number one is not an exciting story. However, you could twist it and turn it by saying who we need to become in order to become a number one. That's what might be exciting because we need to... We, it's almost like becoming, how to become a championship contending team. It's not just winning the Super Bowl, right? Like winning the Super Bowl could be a goal in itself. We want to be the, but it's actually how are we going to show up when when we don't want to train, when we're feeling down? What's the journey that's going to take us to get to the top of the mountain? Because you can get to the top of the mountain and realize you've lost half your women and men up up the hill, right? So mm -hmm. what's the point of that? So it's really this idea of finding something that that feels genuine, that is congruent to your core values as, as an individual, as a leader, as an organization. And then to finding a way to remind yourself of it because you can do a workshop with someone and come up with like this really lovely kind of, you know, our purpose is to eradicate career misery in the workplace, but you forget what that means or you, you kind of lose track of it. But every once in a while, you're gonna sit back down and go, this is our North Star. Like this, this is why we put up with all this. But you can't have, I'll, I'll say this, you can't have a compelling purpose without a clear set of core values or guiding principles, sometimes people call them. Because a purpose gives you like a raison d'etre and like a kind of a reason for being in your why and it gives you that kind of North Star, almost that lighthouse. But along the way, you're gonna have to make decisions on how you hire, how you fire, how you uh, bring on suppliers, how you work with clients. And, and, and a lot of the times you need a set of guiding principles or values, if you want, that gonna dictate whether you say yes or no right like and, and how you do things and how you do things but culture is how we do things around here that's it like if you had to really boil down what's the culture it's like how we do things around here so i often say when i go to when i used to go to companies and they'd bring me in and they'd tell me like we've got a really great culture mark and it's really thriving and you know and they'd have like these great values written on the wall you know like authenticity and transparency and all these great things we've got a fruit bowl you know it's like wow we really like 
you age. And I would say to them, I said, that's great, but- How do you execute? I'm gonna, no, not even that. I said, I'm gonna judge you on three different places when I'm gonna visit your office. And they're gonna tell me more about your culture than anything else that you can throw at me. And that's your kitchen, your boardroom and your bathroom, because those are your communal spaces. The way that people treat the space is a reflection of how they treat each other and how they respect the place they work. So that tells me more about culture than, than mm. any kind of brochure they could give me. Note taken. <laughs> uh, you mentioned your talk and in that talk, you did indeed uh, touch upon several points that mm. I want to discuss. So one of them is where you made the point of there is no need to quit your job in order to find the meaning and purpose. Mm. So that really resonated with me because looking back from my own past, I've quit perfectly great position from amazing companies because I was lacking that deeper sense of purpose. So I feel like we have this tendency as humans to become disenamored with different jobs, different relationships, even hobbies. After a while, if there is no that spice that you mentioned of life, that variety, or we don't maybe set ourselves new challenging goals along the way. And it just becomes easier to chuck it in the bin altogether Reset. rather than exactly mm. to look at that big picture, look at where the, the, the thread was lost, mm. look where to start rebuilding or what needs tweaking. We just think, okay, well, I'm not feeling fulfilled. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's your fault. Yeah. And that's often, exactly. often this, what it's happens. The job's it's, fault. It's, it's your fault. It's mm. you're not. Yeah. yeah it's, but, and I think what you speak to is, is very relevant and, Again, that was like my first book started as a joke because I wrote a blog post whereby I was in a job and I was looking for a different kind of job. And I would have to sneak out in the corridor to take on phone calls for like job interviews. I would take on fake holidays, but actually I would go to Paris for job interviews. And I felt like I was having an affair on my workplace, right? I felt like, mm. I felt like me trying to look for a new job while still being employed was like me trying to look for a new girlfriend while I was still in a relationship. And I kind of blogged about this as a bit of a joke. And it got a really good reaction. People kind of laughed. I was kind of sharing like a few anecdotes. That became a book, It's Not You, It's Me, which was this kind of thing about, you know, like the relationship when you break up with someone and you yeah. kind of go, it's not you, it's me. I just, you know, I've changed. I moved on. And that's what happens with the book. But what I've learned from my experience, having worked with a bunch of people when I used to be more of a life coach back in the day, is that just like in relationships, if you don't address the issue at the heart of your discomfort, it will show up again and again and again and again, right? Like you'll somehow attract the same partners. You'll somehow end up in the same situation at work. Like, how am I here again? And in the victim mindset, you might start going like, it's not fair. Why is this happening to me? Et cetera, et cetera. Whereas what I always say is like, it's not about stay in a relationship, whether that's at work or, 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 in, or, in, a, or in a romantic relationship at all costs for the sake of it. But know that, and of course, if you're in an abusive, toxic relationship, it's a completely different story and, and, and a different matter. But shy of that, I think there's an opportunity to stay with the discomfort and really be honest with like, what is the part of responsibility that I'm willing to take that's co-created this situation? So I'll give an example. I can, you know, it's so interesting now, you know, with a few years added to my belt, a bit more experience, a bit more kind of awareness in terms of conversation with different people, leaders, companies, organizations that I can honestly hand to heart say that I was stuck in a lot of victim mindset when I was an employee and I blamed a lot of my employers and I blamed a lot of the situations for me not feeling a certain way. 
whereas if I if I take an honest lens and apply it to the situation, I, I would find that I lack the courage and the conviction to express my discomfort, to explore what my needs were and to have an open dialogue and conversation about what could potentially be done to fix it before quitting, right? Same thing with relationships. I've self-sabotaged relationships in the past, right? Instead of like addressing the core issue. So I think it's it's an important note, which I think you bring, which is sometimes we can blame our employer. We can blame our colleagues. We can blame, like, and I'm not saying no one's not to blame. Like everyone holds a bear of responsibility in, in co-creating situations. But I think you'd be much better off to kind of really honestly go, look, I can quit if I want to, but before I quit, let me try and see if I can fix it. So I'll, I'll give you a very concrete example of this. I remember speaking with a friend and he was about, he was basically about to resign from his job. I think he was more like an, an admin assistant kind of job, I think, in this particular organization. And uh, and he's like, I'm really bored. I'm not being stimulated. I want to do something more creative. So I'm going to quit and I'm going to join like a social media manager position somewhere else. And I remember going like, so did you tell them that? He was like, no, but there's no point because there's no progression in the company anyway. It's just the unspoken system. Also the assumptions, right? The yeah, assumption yeah, yeah. of the unspoken system. And uh, I remember saying, so if you're telling me if you if your if your employer said, look, this may not be your core job at the moment, but we know it's important to you. Maybe you could spend like half a day a week learning this particular skill set. And the rest of the time you focus on this other stuff, like, would that be something you'd be willing to take on? You'd be like, yeah, one hundred percent. I was like, So how do you want them to be mind readers? Facts. Like, Same as relationships. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's kind of like you can't it's really difficult for the other person to know what you're truly going through and feeling if you don't let them in on it. And, yeah. I, and I know it sounds obvious, but how many times have you been in a relationship or been in relationships We're not where... trained to be in discomfort. We're not yeah. trained to endure and even less initiate these uncomfortable situations. Yeah. That is the problem. Yeah, and, it, and, it, and it's because, you know, and we can get as deep as you want to hear, but the fundamental issue that I've found having worked with, you know, successful on paper CEOs and founders of, of companies is... Am I lovable? And do I love myself? Am I enough? Those three fundamental questions will drive pretty much any behavior you do, whether that's striving for more, trying to prove everyone wrong, having a chip on your shoulder, but also avoiding conflict or difficult conversations. Like I'm not, I'm not a pro at that, right? Like my partner used to run the school of conflict. She is like the queen of conflict. Like she used to because she's kind of stopped the business. But some people are naturally more inclined to either enjoy those kind of conversations or very comfortable most of us aren't and it's you've it's conditioned from a really young age it's one of the reasons why you find cells icky and you find people like interrupting people's lives really difficult to call and say hey i know you filled out my form this is a good time to chat because when we were children and we're talking the parents will say stop and we're talking don't interrupt so from the script of a young child you learn that oh, it's rude to interrupt people in their day so then you carry that on when you're trying to build your business right so just these little things that we can sort of learn and unpack so there's great tools out there you can look at non you know non-violent uh, communication techniques which is like how to approach a difficult conversation in a safe structured way where you kind of state the action without having any feelings attached to it and then you say how it makes you feel what your wish is and th there's different ways of going about it but i just feel that people going oh, my job is so boring and I'm not having any... It's like, cool, so before you go, what can you do about it to try and, and create it here and now and then? Because if you can't, 
you're going to find yourself six months, two years down the line in the same situation. Absolutely. And this is where I also wanted to add that this is one scenario that you've described. In my experience, I've I've had these moments where, okay, it's an, it's a great job. There's nothing wrong with it. It's, mm. it's great. And I'm great at it and mm. everything's nice. However, again, that deeper thought of that sensation that, okay, this is not what really I was born to do. But I feel like I am wasting my potential. And I know that's mm. a bit of a kind mm. of phrase that goes around there right but the mm -hmm. sensation is very clear but then you kind of fall into that temptation of okay let me drop this and let me go and find out something new and exciting to mm. do that might be it etc so in hindsight learning from my own mistakes like if anyone kind of finds themselves in that situation i would say you know stay where you are keep your job and try like imagine that you already quit then what would you do then and mm. do that whilst yeah. you're in the job you know what i mean because yeah, yeah, yeah. otherwise we just kind of fool ourselves with this new exciting incredible future but then you know when you get there then they're kind of the reality hits and everything else so you can just test that whilst you're still in the job so you take less risks i guess yeah. and you really test your actual will and desire to do those things yeah, you've got you've got to see it like, you know, there's that old saying like what got you here won't get you there. And it's the same thing in relationships, you know. If the grass is not greener. Well, it's, you know, I mean, sometimes it can be, who knows, but but at least what I've, what I've come to see in my own relationship, you know, when you're with someone after a certain while, like there are there are things you can, it's like a fire. If If you don't attend to your fire, it's going to burn out. And so whether that's your career, whether that's your health, whether that's your relationship, your finances, whatever, you've, you've got to remember, like, are you are you caring and paying attention to your fire? And are you keeping it alive, whether that's it needs a bit of oxygen, it needs a bit that might be space, you know, between, you know, is it need a bit of fire that might be more intimacy, like connection, whatever it is. And it's the same thing. Like, I, I always joke about this, that there are so many parallels between intimate personal relationships and, and our work and again that was like the first book right and and it's this idea that it is i would i wonder there's something along the lines of like how how different would you show up if the responsibility of finding fulfillment and meaning in your work was on your shoulders not your employer's shoulders just play with me for like for a second imagine that was the way it was going to play out how differently would you show up and what would you what would you say do act differently you know well, what would that give you permission to say or do if it was up to you and, and you the could change it. The thing is, it is. And it is. Yeah, it right. Is. But for people who might not be ready to take mm -hmm. that on, just pretend like what if there was a you know role play situation and the fulfillment and meaning of your relationship was on your shoulders at work or even in your relationship, what would you do differently? You know, I love that you uh, draw this parallel between work and relationships. I just had a chat with a friend of mine and he was saying, he was basically expressing this um, this experience that a lot of, let's put it that, successful and affluent, say, businessmen or entrepreneurs mm -hmm. have, which is maybe they find themselves in their late 30s, early 40s, very great success, uh, you know, financially uh, in their businesses, career-wise. But they don't have relationship no fulfilling relationships no mm. spouse no partner not anything and what i said was i think from what i've observed as well is that oftentimes these men have put so much they've invested so much in their careers mm. so much in their work they have effectively not taken that sort of vision of investing equally mm. amounts of time energy mm. and thought into a romantic relationship but because they have done all the work with that and have achieved success there they kind of expect 
you know, the ideal partners mm. just drop from the sky, appreciating what they've done in the other field where they've basically mm. dedicated their whole life to. But it doesn't quite work like that, mm. does it, right? So you can always, you know, have somebody that is just there for you for the money, but that's not really what you want, right? You want somebody that's there for you, but mm. for them to even see who you are and to appreciate you for who you are, you have to show who you are. Yeah, and look, I, I was... I was quite fortunate that one of my first jobs ended up working at a INSEAD. It's a it's a, like a, a global business school, and it happens to be in my hometown. And when I was coming back from two thousand nine, I went through a bit of a bad period. I ended up getting a job there, so I worked and was exposed to like some really interesting professors. And I discovered social entrepreneurship, this con this concept that you could use business principles to foster social transformation. I was just like, oh my god, that's amazing! And I remember just speaking to a bunch of executives because my role was to effectively help run these executive education programs. So I'd hang out with a lot of participants who were often kind of C-suite executives and CFOs, CEOs, et cetera. And we would just have these candid conversations, right? Like over like a canapé or like over dinner or whatever it was. And something struck me pretty early on. And I was, you know, I was, you know, pretty young at the time. And, and they kind of would open up sometimes and say like, I kind of got it wrong. And I'd be like, you know, what do you mean? Like, you know, they were on their second marriage. Some of them were like on their second marriage. They, or that, you know, they had the second or third house, holiday house. They put their kids through private education and all this stuff. And they'd achieved this quote unquote financial success, but they didn't know their kids. Like they, 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 their kids didn't speak to them because they let, you know, their wife had left them. And, and I just remember going like, this is nuts. Like these are some of the most, again, quote unquote, successful people, you know, in the business world. And a lot of them I spoke to were struggling with some form of, of fulfillment in, in that domain. And I had a chat with my friend about this the other day, which is how to redefine what success means to me or to you, to us, that I can be stuck into old patterns. So for example, right now, I would say I am, I am time rich. Not necessarily cash rich, but I'm time rich. And it's, a, it's really difficult to, to assign the proper value to it compared to if I worked in the corporate world right now, or if I got a steady job and I would have you know, different type of salary, but there is something that comes with the freedom of being able to, to, to manage my own time and work with certain clients and get to travel and give talks. Like I'm going to give a talk in April in, in America. And it's hard. It's really hard for someone to wake up listening to this and realizing that maybe they, they got up that ladder, but they're on the wrong wall. It's really tough because you kind of go, why did I do this? Because maybe my parents said I should do this. Maybe society, I bought the, the, the what society told me I should do. And, and that, you know, I've got a lot of compassion for people going through that, you know, because I think a lot of us have in this kind of space have kind of gone that through that difficult challenge at some point. But I think it's also a healthy question to ask. Definitely. And I think we're also given these all sorts of wrong images about what things are. Mm. So in your talk, you also spoke about this entrepreneurial limelight right so this 21st century superstar and that's so true you know now you look and every other person has the forbes 30 and the 30 then they mm. have this accolade and then they have that award and, and then you know the most revered people are these the richest people on earth which are all entrepreneurs so everyone's going after that thinking that okay great you know gonna be on my laptop sipping mojitos and tanning on beaches amazing supercars and all that but it's literally the opposite it mm. is the most kind of anxious lonely scary journey that you can take so we're literally sold a lie 
Like I feel like all the failed- Because tears is what I said, because tears don't sell. Yeah. You know, so let's talk about the talk and yeah, it's 100%. It's, and I feel like if all of the failed entrepreneurs came together and they filed a lawsuit, that would be the <laughs> biggest lawsuit for whoever's marketing it that yeah, way. Yeah. You know, who, who, who are these people pulling these strings and putting out these images in our well, heads, you know? Yeah, I mean- Biggest lawsuit and look, on earth. And look, and look, you know, it's for some people, it's not the same journey. Like some people do manage to find kind of a groove and enjoy that process and, and are built for it. Um, but I think it's, yeah, I think there is, there. That, that, at least that's what I felt the need to give my TEDx talk was I felt like there was a need for like a counter argument to the kind of the prolific message being portrayed as being an entrepreneur is the ultimate gateway to freedom, happiness, success, and all the accolades you can think of in the world. And it's a tough, it's a bit like saying that everyone should do an Ironman, right? It's a bit like... <laughs> well, the more you hear about it, the more people will want to do it. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, pictures of people who've just completed an Ironman and, you know, they're ripped or whatever. Because what you're really chasing is a feeling, if you think about it, right? So if you ask someone like, what well, do you want to be? I want to be famous. Why? Really, if you, and you keep on asking that question six, seven, eight, nine times, what you'll get to is like, so that I feel like I'm enough, right? So that I can be seen and finally heard and understood and loved. And like, that's, that's what it's going to be. If you ask someone, uh, you know, why do you want to be rich? It's because they think they're going to feel a certain way. But the truth is, and I can say this, and everybody can understand this from an intellectual perspective, viscerally is a completely different matter. All these things, and I, I know this because I've, I am that guy and I've been on that journey. Like I, I will put up a, a goal, right? I want to give a TEDx talk. Or I want my TEDx talk to hit a million views. Or I want to get a traditional publishing deal with like a major publisher in the world. Like f keep going the list, right? I think I'm going to feel different but when I won't. get there. No, I won't. And I don't. It passes. Like, you know, when my book launched on launch day, we managed to hit top three in three different categories on Amazon. Top 10, sorry. Top 10 in, in three different categories on Amazon. That's it. I mean, literally like 10 minutes later, I was like, oh, got bestseller launch day. Great. You know, and then you, you, and you go to the next thing and the next thing. And, and it's relentless. It is relentless. And some of the most content, you know, leaders I've come across are people who kind of really understand the, the idea that there's this place that you can reach, which is, I want to better myself, but not coming from a place of, of shame, of guilt, of judgment, of I'm not enough, but rather from, for the betterment, mm -hmm. uh, but not at the cost of relationships. And I have no false pretense that I have to wait until this achievement happens for me to feel the way I want to. Yeah. I think it's, Danielle Laporte, I think, wrote, she came on my podcast, she's really cool. She wrote a book, I think, called The Value Map. Does that ring a bell? And I think that the whole premise of the book is basically, we put up all these, think about think about your New Year's resolutions. If I asked you, like, what are your 10 top New Year's resolutions, top five, whatever it is, you write them down, right? I want to get in the best shape of my life. I want to make like a million dollars, whatever. And effectively, Classics. it's like, yeah, <laughs> and you know, and try to go to Japan. And, um, you, but you'll say like, what are you hoping to feel? If you get that. So then you, you discover and that. And you can get that feeling every day if you want. Well, there you go. So, you know, I don't know. Oh, man, like, okay, I want I want to imagine me. I'll be like, oh, I'd love to be invited on, I don't know, X podcast, right? I, I can't think of anyone right now. But And you'd be like, why? I'm like, because I'm going to get loads of people to hear my message. And like, okay, but why? Why does that matter? Because I can help more people. And I can go through these layers. And ultimately, I'll be again, I'll be like, so I feel like I'm enough. But actually, and that can, is something that you can give yourself any you day of the week. Yeah. Right. And no one else is going to, but here's, here's the mad thing. 
is that the thing we seek the most in validation from others cannot be given by anybody else but ourselves. Amen. But, th but th that's what's nuts about this whole, you know, <laughs> if you think about, I don't know if there are gods or if there's a universe of some thought looking down on us, but if there are, they must be laughing like their heads are because like, look at, look at these humans. This is hilarious. Trying to get it outside when yeah. it's there all yeah. along. Yeah. yeah, it's well, it's a bit like the alchemist, right? Yeah. Paul Keller's alchemist. It's that. It's this, it's this crazy journey of chasing our tails. No, worse, chasing other people to tell us what a tail should look like or tell us when our tails is going to be enough. You know? it's, it's this image just popped into my mind. It's like you looking like a beggar trying to go to everyone mm. to give you a diamond mm. or whatever. It's a piece of bread mm -hmm. when that diamond or whatever is yeah. literally within you and you're blindly just yeah, begging yeah. all around. Yeah, and it's... it's it's hard. Like I'm saying this as if it's like, it is hard to come to a place of full acceptance of being okay with, with who you are, you know, which is part of the mission with the book to help people come home to their stories and to heal their wounds and to really understand that their warts and fears and shameful and all this kind of stuff actually makes them human. We've all going, we've all got some level. Obviously not, not all of us have gone through some form of massive trauma or, or, you know, small T or big capital T trauma. But I do think that it's part of the puzzle. It's part of the process. Like coming home to your story is part of that element of actually, I'm not going to get validation from others because I first need to seek it for myself. But what would that mean about me if I say I'm enough? What kind of, you know, that's the work ultimately. And I like uh, what you mentioned about kind of setting goals. I think oftentimes we, we focus on these it's, they're not even arbitrary like they're rooted somewhere right mm. these goals that we want to achieve mm -hmm. but if we think about it and we put them into perspective it's always related to something external yeah i want to yeah you know be number one podcast because yeah. i've seen that person be number one podcast yeah. and they have such an amazing yeah. life etc 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 whereas the way i like to think about my life is i always try to focus on the way i want to be rather than maybe specific things i want to do or achieve mm. etc because i know like i've seen this in my life as you say it's a fleeting moment for one second you're like oh great yeah gone and it know? but it happens every time every time when my podcast won like the best podcast interview award i was just like amazing and then 24 hours later i was like <laughs> i think i'm gonna stop my podcast it, it, it really it, it's it's i think it's jim carrey who said this i'm gonna paraphrase i'm gonna butcher it but something on the lines like I wish everybody could be rich and famous so they could understand it's not the answer to all their problems. And this is also a good point, which is I think you have to go through that. I yeah. think you have to achieve some level of success and some, some level of financial security to then see it really impractically for yourself. Well, mm. that's not where it's at. Because otherwise you can tell that to people. Yeah. They're not going to believe you. Yeah, yeah. They're like easy for you to say. Yeah, exactly. Get no, out I of agree. my face. I agree. It's, it's, yeah. it, it, it is tough. So it's almost in, in theory, it's always within us, but we have to go these rounds in the world have this friction with other people go through these experiences mm. to then be able to unlock that internal diamond yeah I, th I think it's the essence of buddhism and and a lot of this kind of deeper work uh, around um how do we how do we accept ourselves i, th I you know I, um, who said that it's something like most of the world's misery can be down to like men not taking the time to sit down in quiet in silence or something being uh, there's mm. like some famous quote like that it's yeah, it's one of the reasons why we overconsume content, which is ironic because we're saying this on a podcast, right? But, mm. but really, it's I'm I'm like that. I I, I uh, well, my my intention for 2023 was cultivating presence. Like I have an intention every. I don't have I don't do New Year's resolutions. I do intentions. And this year, it's cultivating presence. So what does that mean? It means that 
at any given moment or time, if I have an option to take my phone out or to listen to a podcast, listen to music, make a phone call, I don't to the best of my ability. And I just sit with my own thoughts, my own feelings and see what am I avoiding, right? By like, by like grabbing my phone, by trying to find a distraction, like what is it that I'm running away from? Like what is the, what is the feeling, the emotion, the thought that I can't be with, I don't want to be with, whether consciously or unconsciously, that I get to minimize by using my phone, a phone conversation, whatever it is, which, which I can justify, right? Like I'm going to go for a workout. I'm going to do the dishes, like something. Yeah, we're I, so stuck in this multitasking. I want to maximize my yeah. time. I want to wash the dishes yeah, and listen yeah, yeah. to right, a podcast right. like, and learn I an audio I want to watch Netflix, all this stuff. And, you know, you know, my partner used to say this joke, like, God forbid you'd wash the dishes without listening to a podcast. But it's, it's, tr it's true. Like, and I can see how it's kept my mind so busy. Busy is easy. Yeah, it is. And, I, you know, to, to loop back to the purpose conversation we had, you know, Aubrey Marcus said this best. He said, you know, your purpose doesn't shout at you. It whispers. Mm -hmm. And so even Rich Roll, when he did his course on mind, mind, body, green, whatever it's called, I forgot what it's called now. Mind, green, body. Anyway, he did a course on like how to find your purpose. Like the first premise of the workshop, the course was like, you've got to sit down in silence twice a day for 20 minutes for like 30 days. Then you come back to this course, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and it doesn't have to be that extreme for people listening. But I would challenge anybody listening to this, like sit without any distractions for like five minutes and see how uncomfortable you feel. Or my game, this is my favorite game, is I go in the tube or I go on the bus. I'm not allowed to pull out my phone. And I've got to count the number of other people who are not on their phone. Hmm. It used to be count the number of people on their phones, but that's just got ridiculous. So you look around and you see who's not on their phone. And it's it's scary. It is. I find it scary when you look around and I can't help but think about... You can't the, see anybody else's eyes. Yeah, and it's but it also reminds me like the film Her. I think it's Spike Lee, Spike Jones, where Joaquin Phoenix develops a relationship with an operating software and you see everybody hooked to their phones. And it was like this dystopian kind of parody of the future, but it's it's here. And so I see that, especially in playgrounds. And I hate to say it, but mostly with dads, right? Like I'll be there and I see, and I used to do that a bit and I try to catch myself to be on our phones, like to be, and it's really weird because you see like this kid playing and you see the dad on the phone or they're going to school and they're holding the hand to the kids, but they're holding the phone. And I just, I'm not sure the development process on our kids is going to be that healthy to not having any cues or responses from their parents' eye contact when they look up if they've done something or if they're not sure of something and they're staring at a screen. So much so that you see kids are obsessed with screens now. I mean, that's the whole other conversation. Of course, because they take example. Yeah, right. And it's like kids are sponges. That's a very, very important point. We are setting the example and we need to take responsibility for that as well. Yeah. And it sucks because sometimes I just want to take my phone out and I just want to zone out. In your talk, there's another thing that you mentioned, which is breadcrumbs and the power of starting small, but starting today. Can you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, I think where most people get stuck or overwhelmed is they have this idea or this notion of what the end result should be and it feels like such a distant journey that it just feels really difficult to start it's like a mountain it's a bit like you're gonna have to eat this elephant oh my god like where do i start and then when you look at a big mountain and you go i've got to be at the top like oh it's, it feels huge so what i found is is actually to start with really deceitfully small steps lead to bigger bigger kind of events so this gonna sound stupid but since january i started a kind of a, a bit of a health routine like a bit of a health program kind of thing and 
I used to be the kind of person who was like, go all in or, or don't bother. But I started noticing little little things I could do. So if there's an elevator or a staircase, I take the staircase. Mm. If I'm in the tube, if I can stand, I stand. Just little things like that, like stopping one tube stop earlier than I normally do. Like all these little things that I can do, which seamlessly don't feel like they do matter a lot, but actually aggregated, they do, right? Like, like the atomic whole habits. Yeah, 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 like the 1% aggregate, exactly. So I think... There's a great, I'll try and send you the link. If I don't know if you do show notes, but if you do show notes, I'll send you the link. There's a great little video by Ari Glass, who is the host and founder of This American Life podcast. And it's a great, great video where he talks about the gap, the creative gap between our taste, i.e. our desire, our vision, our yearning for, and our current state. And the journey that separates those two is what often people where, where, where often people get stuck because they're not there yet. You know, whether you're an artist, like a podcaster, if you listen to this, or an author, or whatever it is, or a speaker, and you see where you want to be, but you're not there yet. Well, it's really easy to stop yourself in the track and to not bother. But I, I used to do this exercise with clients, which was, you know, they'd visualize kind of where they wanted to be or what kind of company they want to run or what kind of team they were leading or what kind of, impact they were having or whatever it is and they describe it and it's like they could connect to this vision they could connect to this thing and then i would just simply say now in your in this future self state looking back at today what's one thing you think you can do towards this vision what's one step one action one thing you could do right now just small little actionable tangible thing you could do right now and they usually come up with something you know i just send an email or make a phone call or Whatever it is, but there's always something small you can do. You know, it's a bit like you know, I was I was very much that philosophy of if I can't get an hour workout, well, then what's the point? Five push-ups is not going to help, but it's more than nothing, right? So, it, it it is that idea of, you know, and again, it's it's a whole talk I used to do, and it's, I'll, I'm turning it into my next book. But there are ways that you can access these ideas and and uh, and avenues of of chasing your curiosity. So. Mm-hmm. Breadcrumbs, the idea of breadcrumbs, you know, Hansel and Gretel who leave the breadcrumbs to go to the house and and then end up getting lost. But it's like this this metaphor of you chase the, the little thing that's that's grabbing your attention, your curiosity, and you go and do that. And then you see where that leads to the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one. And, the next one, and, the next one. and here we are today. I'm sitting in front of you talking. Like if when I launched my podcast in 2015, like I didn't I didn't know. Like if you go back to my episode number one of the Unconventionist podcast, you'll hear me say, welcome to the yet be named, or welcome to the be yet be named podcast. Like that. I didn't have a name. I love that I, you I launched, still launched it. I launched the podcast I and I it. didn't have a name. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's, it's. I mean, obviously now I would, I would tell people it's probably like a really bad <laughs> idea, but and I know Star- it's easy Starting say, is so much worth so much more okay, I'll tell than you this. starting perfect. I'll tell you this. This is probably the only advice you need, you know, we can wrap it up after this one quote because it's enough. It's Dr. Valerie Young the author of The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women. It's not the most clear title of what the book's about, but the book's amazing. It's about imposter syndrome. And uh, throughout all her years of research and studies and working with people around this topic, she found and realized that feelings are the last things to change. We think we're going to wait until we feel a certain way to start, or we're going to feel a certain way and then things, it doesn't work that way. You start and then yeah. things follow. Yeah, it's a bit like, again. So what's I, the precursor to action? What, is it just go blank and just execute? Well, so, okay. So there's, you know, the, everyone's everyone's rooted differently, but I think it's 
there's I don't know if you heard that Mel Robbins kind of five yeah the, the five or seven second I never yeah. know five, five second rule seven second rule yeah. whatever it is it's actually nothing new like Neil Strauss the author of the controversial book The Game which was all about back in the day of the pickup but he he, he he wrote a different book called The Truth I think it is which was amazing about relationships but anyway in that book he basically talked about if you see someone who's attractive if you see someone you're interested in You've got seven seconds to go and speak to them before your brain gives you all the reasons why you shouldn't. So what I would recommend someone to do is, let's say you've got an inclination. I, I don't know what it is, okay? DIY. I'll, I'm just throwing this out there. I'm just curious in DIY. Like, I'm the kind of guy, I can change a lamp bulb. That's about it, right? Like, my level of DIYness is shameful because <laughs> my dad is the opposite of a DIY kind of guy. My granddad could do anything. Uh, on my mum's side, but my dad's side, he's an artist, he's a musician, like he just, you know, doesn't do any of that. So maybe I'm like telling you, oh, you know what? I'd love to do a, I'd love to see if I like, but oh, city, I don't, that would be like the typical reaction. Whether I go, hey, I wonder what's DIY. Hey, I wonder if there's a course nearby. I go on, like the first thing, action, Google, DIY workshop, London or Instagram, look at something and then, or even put a message on, on Facebook or WhatsApp or Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, Snapchat, whatever anyone's not doing these days and just go, hey, do you know anybody who runs like a workshop on regular about this? And that's an action. That's an action step. That's the first step that then, then I might get a response and then I might book a course. I might go, I might love it, I might hate it. It doesn't matter. But the, you've got to find that first quick step, which is usually reaching out, searching, booking. Yeah, because that's how you gain momentum. Yeah. You've quoted a lot of great authors and mm. thinkers. What if I asked you are the three important lessons that you've picked up for yourself during your lifetime what would they be this has been so overused but it, i can't think of a more fundamental truth which is it's like you're enough what you do doesn't define you like your accolades your achievements none of that matters it's like your essence your being your presence matters more than you know more than anyone will ever know and realize you know which for a lot of people is a concept which is so hard to grasp me included but this concept of idea that you matter and you're enough for just being period full stop you know that that'd be one number two it would be it'd be something along the lines of whatever you think is wrong about you whatever you think is deeply shameful or broken about you most likely is the birthplace of healing i think you'd be amazed at what comes out of it i think the connection the level of love the level of acceptance and peace that you can experience and find from that place would be mind-blowing difficult but worth that's two Three, it would be that no matter what your monkey brain says, no matter what your saboteurs tell you, no matter what society makes you believe, fundamentally, the most important thing in your life are your close relationships to your best friends, family, and kids, period. There's this idea of, of, of concept called watch your six. And that comes from a military jargon of when you're in, in a... In a specific situation where you will use a clock in terms of directions, right? So I don't know, enemy at two o'clock or something like that. Watch your six, it means watch your back. But actually, watch your six also means the six people who will carry your coffin. So who are the six people? If right now you died, would carry your coffin, who would those six people be? And are you spending enough time, energy and love in nurturing those relationships? Because nobody on the deathbed says, I wish I'd recorded more podcasts. I wish I'd won more awards. I wish I'd made moment like no one if you read that like all the all the things that people say about what the dying wish they'd done differently it's often i i wished i'd loved more i wished i'd been kinder to myself i wished i'd spent more time with my kids and family and actually a link to my book 
uh, a lot of people say, I wish I told my story. I wish I could tell my story. Speaking about your book, which I, by the way, recommend to anyone, Glow in the Dark, right here. <laughs> you speak on the importance of sharing your story, mm. how to craft it, imposter syndrome, and many other very mm. useful things. So when I was reading it, just this thought came into my mind. Why, if we know how important authenticity is and how much it can connect us with other people, we're still so petrified of sharing mm. our shortcomings and our flaws, our weaknesses, and the whole truth of who we are. So if I ask you, what's one thing that most people don't know about you? What comes up like an, from an emotional response? Like what comes up for you? Probably something that I wouldn't share. Yeah. And, and without sharing, what, but how does that make you feel? Like, is it scary? Is it vulnerable? Like, what words would you associate to that experience? Scary, maybe mm. shameful, mm. maybe... Uncertain. Maybe blame or guilt. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So imagine that. And then someone's asking like, but come on. <laughs> just, just share it right it's gonna be the key to connect with you so i just again normalizing the human experience that like i told you at the very beginning yeah. of this conversation it's that it's just to kind of say that everyone goes through that everyone feels that on certain levels no matter what we've gone through no matter what that thing is we all have some level of fear now the reason we have this is because we're actually designed to be that way right biologically speaking we are hardwired to fit in because from an ancestral perspective, if you weren't able to fit amongst the tribe, if you weren't able to be part of the group, you were going to die, right? Like if you went against popular belief, if you, for whatever reason, shook the boat and weren't accepted amongst the community, you were going to be left on your left on your own. You definitely won't be procrastinating, um, procreating, and reproducing yourself. You'd be die you'd be facing the saber toothed tiger on your own, right? So. There's a deep fear inside of us of standing out and of not just coasting under the radar. And being rejected. Right. Because our ultimate fear is, I will be rejected. I won't be loved. I'll die alone. I'll smell of cat piss. Like, if you go down that road, that's what you kind of find at the end of the day. So I just want to say I get that. That's 100% normal. Now, in my book, you know, when, when people read the book, they'll understand. I don't say like, you need to share your story with everyone. That's not what I say. What I say is that if any, if with anyone, you need to be real honest with yourself, with your story. And then if you can find the courage to share your story with one person who you trust, whether that's a professional context with a therapist, a coach, a psychiatrist, or whether that's with a really deeply intimate friend who you trust, there is a healing element when you get to be witnessed. Like I remember in the past, like having things that I was really ashamed of and really scared of and just held on very tightly to. And I remember when I started sharing them with a few friends, Instead of getting reject rejection, I got empathy and I got love and I got connection. More connection. Yeah, and it was really overwhelming. It was really overwhelming because, you know, Bernie Brown said it best. He said, you know, shame can't survive being spoken to. Because shame thrives in secrecy, in silence, behind closed doors. That's where it can that's the only place it can live and survive. But the moment you start shining a light on it, the moment you start pouring love over it it's really difficult for it to sustain and to survive and so what i want to say to people is look there are three main reasons why i say to people like sharing your personal story in a professional context can be really helpful number one it can help better connect and engage with your audience who need to understand why they should know trust and like you it enables to contextualize why you do what you do what project you're working on what business or service you're providing or why you're doing this initiative in your company or, or what have you 
So it enables people to, to, to feel connected to you. It enables the person listening to the story to not feel alone. That's number two, right? So they suddenly feel a sense of healing themselves because they're able to see in your story reflection of themselves, whether they're Relate, yeah, relate. Yeah. And it justifies their story as well. Right, right. And it kind of, it kind of said, again, like I talk about this in the book in the opening chapter where I share my story for the first time about my mental health kind of issues I had in 2009 in a public setting with journalists and I really hesitated to do it and I talk about it in the book why but at the end of it this guy called Matt comes up to me and says I came here to find a bit more information but I got so much more what I got was he didn't say this exact word but like the gift of of hearing another guy talk about his mental health challenges and I never really heard anyone talk about it publicly I thought I was alone so thank you because actually I now realize there's a bunch of us and I was like yeah everyone's got mental health it's not like a it's like physical health everyone's got a physical you know so, so there's, it's good, it's good for business because you can get to connect and people trust, know and like you more. It's good for audience because they feel like they can be seen, heard and healed. And then it's good for you because you can, you can experience the ultimate sense of freedom, which is you no longer fear what people know about you. I think David Goggins did that as well. He said that I've put all my biggest shames and secrets yeah. on billboards. Yeah. And so nobody can hurt me. Well, there you go. I mean, you know, one of the Jeevan McCormick who's the author of, I think it's called like Got Here or like The American Dream or something like that, has one of the most incredible, crazy stories. Like it should be like a Hollywood movie. And if it was a Hollywood movie, you wouldn't believe it. Like his father was a pimp, had like 34 kids. Like his mom grew up, you know, raised him on welfare and stamps, food stamps. And he was abused. He was bullied. He was homeless. He was like all the thing. And now he's the CEO of a major successful media company. He was like, he won like best CEO awards in Austin. And He's incredible, right? He's, he's in my book and I interviewed him on my podcast and there's a healing element to him, to, to yourself. Like owning and accepting your story enables you to show up in a way that is completely different. When you sit across someone who's kind of owned themselves and is unapologetic about who they are, not necessarily saying, I would do all that again, or it's, it, but saying, I messed up, I'm human. I wish I didn't, but I did, but I've got to live with that scar. And so now I want to use that to help others there's something very compelling about that. There's something really powerful about that. It makes us more human. It makes us more genuine. It makes us more real, which I think is a big issue with the politics these days. When you look at most politicians, they almost feel that there isn't like this humanity to them, which is complicated because they can't really, because otherwise their, their, their metric is elections and their, their, their success is whether they get elected or not. And one of the risks that they run against is their opponents using what they use as vulnerability as a weapon. So they get mm -hmm. weaponized their vulnerability. So it's very difficult for... Politi I know. I mean, I've interviewed politicians for a bunch of times, and it's very difficult to get them to to open up or be real about something that isn't steady on the lines, right? So, for those three reasons, I think everyone should consider, at the very least, unpacking and and owning their story, and then little by little, start sharing it in a safe context a place where you feel because i've been on that receiving end where you share your story in the wrong context and it feels awful and you want to clam up right you you, you feel like you can never because you, you were judged you felt even more shame poured how on do you gauge shame. which is a good audience which is a good time so i think you know in the book i talk about the different types of story one of them is open wound stories so open wound stories are stories that are very raw that usually have an emotional charge to them they might not be fully unpacked we might not have fully grasp the magnitude of them yet we haven't really distilled the message and the essence of the lesson and the gift of them and i know it's a strong word to use for a lot of people who've gone through a lot of traumatic experience but what i've learned is that eventually after a lot of healing a lot of time there's an opportunity to say okay what did this give me 
even if it's some of the most traumatic things I've heard from clients and people tell me, it gave them an ability to have empathy with people on a level that most people can't reach. Think about Oprah Winfrey, right? She went through some terrible abuse, some terrible life stories, but that gave her this ability to connect with people and stay with all the shame, all the guilt, all the fears, all the wounds. She can stay and really be present. And I guess people would be able to connect to her better as well because they knew her story and they knew that she wasn't perfect. And even if you didn't know her story, you would feel her impact. That's what that's what I think is the most powerful thing about someone who really owns their story. It's how they show up. Because it's the difference between playing defense and almost offen or offen offensive. But it's but it's not I'm not saying like if you own your story, you could attack, but it's that it's kind of like you're constantly fearing. And if you're constantly hiding, it's a lot of energy that you're consuming to conceal something, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Do you think that our natural reluctance of sharing our story is somehow linked to the imposter syndrome and uh, thinking that what we have to say is not that important or original or it doesn't even matter that much? It's, so uh, th uh, this is kind of like a side answer of the question. But so for imposter syndrome, what I've learned actually, and again, for, that was through Dr. Very Young, it's we actually experience imposter moments. Mm. So we have moments where we feel a certain way, right? Like where, which again, that was, you know, the original book idea I had was very different. It was about overcoming imposter syndrome for entrepreneurs. And I very quickly realized it wasn't really the book I wanted to write. It wasn't really the book I felt most, was most me and what I wanted to talk about, right? So I, I actually had a big, massive imposter moment writing this book. Every day I would sit down, I would be like, oh my God, who am I to write this? Like, no one cares. It's all BS. Like it's just, you deal with that all the time. And I talk about the 10 story blockers in the book. And one of them is, I don't, I don't see how my story matters. So, and people said like, I don't have imposter moment. I just, I just, I'm just scared of what people will think of me. And so that's why I fly under the radar. Well, actually flying under the radar can be a total symptom of, of feeling like an imposter, right? It doesn't have to be, but it can be. And so I, I would say to most people, you suffer from proximity bias which is this concept that you're too close to seeing the value of it so you're so close to your story that you don't see you know, how it matters no you mm. can't you know it's really difficult does that make sense yeah no definitely i was just thinking that that's again it brings us back to the authenticity and connecting to your tribe finding mm. your tribe if you don't find that courage to share your story then how can people find you how can people connect to you you're you're that perfect hidden gem yeah well, it's it, best kept secret right yeah and it, but it's it's yeah it's difficult to connect to someone who's more like a robot than a human yeah, 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 i mean yeah. it's just you know the human nature that actually uh, brings me to another point when when i was reading your book and also i was thinking about other speakers and leaders that i've seen share their story very impactful story i saw this correlation and tell me what you think. So it's almost like there's this level zero, kind of the story sharing where level zero is they're all only sharing, you know, their, their successes, their mm. wins, the accolades, the robots, as you say. Mm. Then level one is people that share some of their struggles, share maybe some of their vulnerabilities. And then that already connects them to some other people that are maybe going through the same thing. Then level two is this, this moment when you share that, trauma where you share mm. that deeply vulnerable super impactful thing that happened to you even if you know you're ashamed about it even mm. if it's scary etc however and i've seen that happen and obviously that's extremely impactful as you mentioned in your book and mm. you know we've seen that happen as well but it's almost always from villain perspective oh, sorry from a victim perspective mm. so what i'm trying to say is i've seen a lot of 
victim to hero because I feel like as a society, as, as people, we love that story. Yeah. Everyone loves the underdog, Harry yeah. Potter, Frodo, Spider-Man, etc. you know, from, from this nerdy guy to the superhero. Amazing, yeah. right? Everyone loves that. And it's almost easy. I say easy. It's not easy. But when you get to that stage, it can be doable to share a story where you've been a victim. But how about when you've been the villain? I don't see a lot of that happening. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and how do you... How do you go and share that when you're villain to hero? The fear of being canceled, of being mm. judged, of mm. losing everything and everyone. And most mm. of all, the fear of not being accepted like the victim persona yeah. is just so much more so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's uh, it's a good point. But I, from the top of my head, I'm thinking about Liam Nelson. Liam, Liam Neeson, is that the, you know, the actor? Liam Neeson, Do you know yeah, that yeah. story when he came out and he said that one of his friends had been raped and he came out with a knife and he just said the words, something like, I was looking for just a black guy to kill. And that came out and did like a massive splash and it was kind of like Liam Nelson's racist. And what I thought was interesting was that that is a, a, a story of like a villain where he talked about the story about like, actually it was a shame that they, that's what his thoughts were. That's what he was thinking about. I think it is safer when it's like you being on the receiving end of something that is, it's not safer. That's not the word I'm looking for. Actually, that's not right. It's not that it's safer. It might be from a societal acceptance perspective, slightly more common to kind of go, I used to be in an abusive relationship. I used to be in a work career I hated. I used to be, even, even you can say I used to be overweight. I used to be X. It is slightly harder, I think. And I think this plays into the stigma and the shame, which actually needs to be debunked to go, I used to be an abusive father. I used to be, I used to cheat on my, on my wife, on my husband. I, I used to be like, actually Scott Harrison, to be fair, probably like the best example I know of is Scott Harrison, the, 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 the co-founder and the CEO of, uh, or the founder and CEO of um, Charity Water. He talks about how he used to be a drug addict, a sex addict, an alcoholic, like just, just abusing all substances and was just emotionally and spiritually bankrupt. And then he uses that part of his story and like he's raised millions now, right? For like some amazing causes. So I'm trying to think of if I can think of any other example where it's like really, you know, something that's really But that's tragic. the point, right? There's so few. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's not it's a difficult, it's because it's a, because you've, you've, it's a difficult, well, Matt Hancock, if I'm not mistaken, who just went on that celebrity, get me out of the jungle kind of thing, right? Interesting is that he got recently interviewed and here's someone who screwed up, screwed up, like telling the nation they can't leave, you know, the houses, but he's having an affair with his mistress and he gets caught. And now that I think could have been an opportunity to kind of tell a story of, of regret, of making a mistake. But for whatever reason, the spin doctors, his PR comms just didn't really do a good, great job at it. Or he just didn't, wasn't willing to do the message because I think it's, it's vulnerable on a different level. It's just the two different kind of vulnerabilities, I think, which is around this idea. And But it's a good question. I, I, I'll have to look into it because I've seen like these kind of videos, you know, um, Samuel Jackson breaks down all his famous roles, you know, like those kind of videos you see sometimes mm -hmm. on YouTube where this guy used to be a bank robber and now he's like a motivational speaker. So it's a story. Yeah. And I've, I've seen I've seen gang members like people who used to be in gangs or people who, who were involved in knife crime would then turn around and kind of do some amazing things. Like, so there's stories like that. Um, but I'd have to think hard to kind of go, I wonder if there's an example of someone who did something like, oh, no, well, actually, no, there is. Oh, what's his name? 
I'll have to I'll have to send you his name for it in the show notes. I used to talk about him when I used to give talks about the pandemic. He he murdered a man and was in jail for like 17 years or something silly. But now he's written a best-selling book. Oprah's had him on his show. He's one of the creative directors at like a really reputable university in America. Like it's a story of repent. It's a story of uh, of someone who who took another man's life and what he learned in the process about solitude and and actually his purpose became to try and change and, and, and fix the correctional system in the US. Very powerful. Mm. But that's something to think about for sure. Yeah. It's, it's a tougher job, I think, for the level threes. Yeah. That want to yeah, yeah, yeah. That have that sort of 100%. Storyline. Mark, you've shared a lot of very valuable knowledge today. If I asked you, what's your recipe of happiness? What would you tell me? <laughs> a recipe of happiness. Find the things that bring you joy and just do more of them. Easy. Love it. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for having Thank me. You. Hello, friends. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe and share it with someone. I would love to hear your feedback and suggestions as to what guests you would like to see in the show next. See you next week.